Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jim Lang. Jim is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster slash sportscaster who has worked in many Canadian markets and covered many notable events, including Grey Cups, Super Bowls, and Stanley Cups. He is also an experienced author, sharing the writing duties on hockey memoirs by NHLers Ty Domi, Max Domi, Wendell Clark, and Brian Burrard. For the past decade, Jim has been hosting The Jim Lang Show, weekday mornings from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., as a day oneer and in fact a voice oneer on hyper-local radio station The Region 105.9, the region in this case being York Region. Welcome, Jim, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thank you, Andrew. It's nice to be here. I'm I'm fine this Saturday morning, and I'm in Newmarket, where my family and I, we have lived for 20 years. Excellent. And may I ask about your family? Who makes up the household, and is everyone back to school and back at work now? Uh, I have my wife, and I have two daughters. So one is graduated Guelph, getting ready for her master's, and the other one's in third year at Carleton. So you're in your prime, uh, you got to keep earning. <laughs> oh, Andrew, I they warned me, and... Until the reality of two kids in Ontario University system hits you, you, you're not prepared for it. it. It's relentless. Well, good. I'm glad you've taken care of business. Now, I am a longtime resident of Richmond Hill, so I think it's only appropriate, <laughs> it's only appropriate to rename the podcast for today as York Region Legends. Jim Lang, you join such esteemed past York Region Legends podcast guests, including Carl Subban, who raised three boys to reach the NHL. Eric Alper, the noted musicologist, Alan Frew, the frontman for Glass Tiger, former Blue Jays executive Bob Nicholson, and none other than Richmond Hill's own Elvis Stoiko, who still has to pay the public skating admission fee whenever he skates at his namesake, Elvis Stoiko Arena at 16th and Young. Congrats, Jim. Thank you, Andrew. That's an uh, esteemed list of uh, York Region residents. And in, in all seriousness, I mean, you know, people forget about this. York region geographically is a big place. If you look from Steeles Avenue to Lake Simcoe, it's got over 1.2 million people. At the, so York region as a region has more population than most cities in Western Canada and Eastern Canada. So there's only a handful of cities in the country that have more population than York region. So it's it it makes sense that we would have, you know, pretty successful people in different walks of life from this area. Absolutely. That's a great point. 1.2 million people. That is huge. Maybe you can tell us, how does your radio station, the Region 105.9, take this kind of hyper-local approach? When it was launched, there was the whole thing that they felt that York Region was being underserved by Toronto Radio, that rightly so, Toronto Radio was focusing on Toronto traffic. So basically everything from the 401 south to Lakeshore and from you know, say Mississauga to along the Pickering area, but anywhere north of the 401 was almost ignored when it comes to traffic, when it comes to um, stories, weather, charities, community events. And there was a big gaping hole for media in New York region that, you know, we feel that we fill, that we let people know what's happening. We give hyper-local traffic to people in New York region, let them know what's happening. Because too often what happens is there are events that take place in our community, and a lot of people go, geez, I wish I would have known about that. And it's a function of streaming and uh, podcast and downloads and satellite radio, which is all great, and I consume it like everyone else. But sometimes you need to listen to your local radio station to know that, hey, in Richmond Hill later on, there's this, or in Vaughn, there's this, or in Aurora, this is happening. 
with our social media, with the radio station, with the website, we try to let people know, hey, this is happening just in your community. And yeah, there's this you know going on, this, this, and this, but hey, they're expanding the GO station at Aurora. Wichert, Stolwell's got you know, this. They're building, they are actually right now building a huge Loblaws distribution center in East Gwillimberg. Massive structure. Uh, things like that, that, you know, if, if you don't listen to our station or don't follow our social media, you wouldn't know about, because let's face it, whether it's, you know, City or CP24, they're they're focused on, this is happening at the Gardner, this is Queen Street, because that's that's their audience. 100%. And I can tell you, when I grew up in North York, the, our local newspaper, The Mirror, oh, yeah. used to be great. And I would love, you know, they might actually list when I actually was lucky enough by accident to score a goal at Pleasant View House League. My name would be in the paper. And today, the paper, I can only speak for Richmond Hill, it, it's almost useless. They throw a paper on Thursday and it's really got nothing. So I can only imagine the ultra importance of the radio station, as you know, to report on local things for local residents. To that end, Andrew, I know in my role in the morning show, I also do the morning sports. So I try to put minor hockey scores, you know, girls, double B rep hockey, or, uh, you know, if there's a um, novice triple A Richmond Hill Coyotes playing the Mark of Waxers, that's big for the people in those communities. Those kids being driven to school hear that, hey, their team won. That's a big impact. It's way, way more important to let them know that Nash will be Dallas. They, that doesn't matter. That doesn't. People who want that will find that. But if you're a family and you're driving your child to school and they're 10 or 11 years old and the person on the radio said their team beat the Vaughn Kings in a AAA game, that's huge. And, hey, they're, this school, that your elementary school, is hosting a big a cancer fundraiser for Terry Fox run. Well, and they hear that, yeah, hey, that's my school. That's a big thing. And that's, you know, we just had the other day, um, the Torstar Corporation just got rid of like over 600 jobs and all these local reporters and local papers. And they're all being gone, Andrew. And for years, that was a way for a, a lot of journalists. And now that's how they got the start. But for people in the community to know what was happening. And, and by getting rid of that, it's doing this nation a disservice because people are finding it harder and harder to find out what's happening in their community because there's worried. Where do you go? Absolutely, like they say, think global, but you got to act local. I do want to ask in your role with the morning show, what is a typical weekday like for you while hosting a five a.m. to ten a.m. morning radio show? Have you, in the last decade, ever stayed up to watch past the first period of a Leafs game? <laughs> I usually make it to the second period. I'm not a big sleeper, Andrew. As long as I get about six hours, I'm okay. And uh, through the week and after uh, lunch, I usually get home. When I get home, I do a little workout, have lunch. I have a little nap, sort of do a reset. And then I call a coffee o'clock after my nap. So after coffee o'clock, about, you know, quarter to three, then I'm like good for the rest of the afternoon, evening. And, but it's it, it, because of it, it's so early and anyone in morning radio will probably tell you the same thing. You do a lot of your prep work the afternoon, evening before. So after coffee o'clock and you start looking ahead to this is something that could be trending in the morning at the same time, while you're sleeping, things happen. So you're, you're reacting to things that are happening in the morning. So you, you try to time it out. Like I know my kids make fun of me, but I, you, you, I lay out everything I need for the morning, the night before, like my vitamins are in my little sandwich container. I have my clothes laid out. So when I get up, it's like, 
it's the shortest amount of time possible to get ready, get in the car and go to the studio because every second counts. And so when you get there, a lot of stuff is already done. So it's less of a scramble as you get ready to go on the air. You are an inspiration. I'm going to send my 16-year-old over because she starts preparing five minutes before leaving for school. So, well, I don't, the problem is, like, you know, Andrew, in and when you're that doing a show that early, and, and it's whatever job you have, even that early, it's not possible because your brain's not really firing yet. So, by doing a little bit the night before, it just makes things so much easier. Absolutely. Now, let's please go all the way back. Get the Jim Lang story. You are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Grew up in a military family. My father was in the Royal Canadian Air Force. I was born in France. At the time, the Canadian Air Force and the Canadian military had a huge presence, uh, NATO presence in Europe. Because in the mid-1960s, when I was born, the threat of Russia slash the Warsaw Pact pouring in to Western Europe from East Germany was a daily threat. It, so they had American, British, Canadian, French, and other NATO countries with a large military presence. So my father was stationed at one wing in Marville, France, right on the Belgian border. Our family, my parents actually lived in a little town called Le Marteau, which is right across the border. And they had an apartment, so it was like just a few kilometer drive to the base. And I was actually born in a U.S. Army hospital in Verdun, um, that, that's where the ambulance took me for my birth. So I was born in France and we lived in France for about a year and a bit. And then my father got transferred to large Germany. They were just establishing a, a new air force base in large Germany in the black forest in West Germany. And it stood there until the late 1980s until they shut it down. And then when I was about two and a half, we moved to Trenton, uh, Ontario, CFB Trenton, which is, um, a huge air force base still to this day. And then, the Canadian government bought uh, a sub-hunting plane. They still fly to this day called the Aurora. And so we moved to Burbank, California. So I did grade eight and a half for grade nine there. Halfway through grade nine, we moved to Greenwood, Nova Scotia in the Annapolis Valley where the Aurora was based. And then after grade, let me see, grade 11, after grade 11, we moved to Camp Borden, Ontario, which is west of Barrie for 12 and 13. And then I went to Humber College after that. Well, you certainly uh, learned to kind of get into your new circumstances in different geographies. As you know, you attended Umbra College for radio broadcasting in the mid-80s. At the end of your first year, you got invited by Lee Eckley to visit Chum FM, and you've described it like Indiana Jones discovering the Holy Grail. Oh, yeah. I, I when, when I When he said that, and we walked through the doors, and it said on the door, and this was from the Waters family, they had a sign through these doors, past the most talented broadcasters in Canada. And it really was like the Indiana Jones discovery. I, I mean, I just, I was in awe. And from years hence, I've, um, you know, Lee and I become buddies and we trade messages and talk about family and that. And I'm a huge fan. He's such a great guy. But it was, it, it, it was like, oh, at the time, Andrew thought, I would never be able to walk through a door like that. I'd never be capable of walking through a door like that, sitting in a board like that, talking in front of a microphone like that. It seemed so far away at the time. But yeah, that was a real, like, you know, the aha moment, you know, with a light, you know, like your backlit. Like, I couldn't believe it. Now, Jim, you later interned at Q107. 
the people you would have been learning from is like a hall of fame of radio broadcasters. Bob Mackowitz Sr., Gene Valaitis, Gene Houghton, John Gallagher, uh, John Derringer, Andy Frost, Jimmy James, ooh, uh, Steve Anthony. Um, it's unbelievable. Like I, it was like whatever I learned at Humber College the first two and a half years, I was like, what I learned in the five months there at that time was exponentially more valuable to me. And you could see what it was like to work day to day in a big market Toronto radio station. You don't just think, well, I had one good day. That's no, it's not good enough. You have to be good every day, every shift. And you're always pushing like, what can we do better? What, how can we be better? You know, radio in Toronto in Canada in the late 1980s, when I did my internship at Q107, it was, it was king because at the time though, people forget now that pre-internet, a big FM radio station like Q107, a big newspaper like the Toronto Star, uh, local news like CFDO News. So a family would have maybe um, went to work listening to the Q Morning Show, you know, at one time or listening to Q News and all that, and then came home, got the afternoon edition of the Toronto Star and read that, had dinner, then watched CFDO News. I mean, that's how you found out what was going on. And so, yeah, it was, it was a, that was an unbelievable experience. Pre-internet, pre-social media. We sound like a bunch of old guys uh, saying how it used to be, but that was it. I tell, I tell younger people that when I started, you were either on the radio, you were on TV, or you wrote for the newspaper. Bob McKenzie was one of the first people who did crossover when he was a hockey writer for the Toronto Star and started to become a hockey insider for TSN. And this would have been the late 1980s. And that was real groundbreaking stuff for Canadian media. And the odd time you would see a crusty old uh, political newspaper columnist uh, sitting on a round table during election night on CBC or Lloyd Robertson and CTV. But for the most part, you did this, you did this, or you did this. You you never crossed streams. Like that never happened, Andrew. You stayed in your lane. Yeah. No. And, you know, companies owned a... Uh, uh, radio stations or newspaper or TV for not years, but for generations, you know, the waters family and the, the, you know, Baton broadcasting and, and, um, you know, the, some of the newspaper, you know, historic newspaper families in the country. So to see it now in 2023, where everything's all sort of together and it's convergence and, you know, jobs are being squeezed out, you know, time and time again, it's, it's, you know, change is inevitable, Andrew, but it's sad. It's sad to see where, where we've come in this country. But you've survived with all the changes. You made a lot of moves. And Jim, you made a move to Montreal's Chum with John Derringer. Now, Derringer chose to live outside Montreal in the suburbs of St. Lazare. But you, as a swinging single guy, correctly chose to live right in the heart of the city in the very stately Outremont neighborhood. It must have been a blast. It was. Well, I mean, first of all, I had an old K-car. And I didn't have winter tires. So I had to live fairly close drive to the radio station, which was on Green Avenue in Westmount. And so I lived, I mean, Ultramaw is a nice area, but I lived on the outskirts of the nice area. My apartment was $330 a month in 1993. And it was basically a cheesy one-bedroom apartment, but I could afford it because they were paying me $20,000 a year. And I thought I was a very rich man. You know, so it was like 
a 10-minute drive to Shulman FM Studios in Green Avenue. So it was a really easy commute, especially that time of morning, coming over uh, the mountain and you know, on Westmount. And it was that was a fabulous experience and a good life experience. Uh, I was in my late 20s. I was single. I, I need to do this for my life and my career. And uh, I was, you know, A, it made me a better broadcaster. I think it made me a better person. It definitely made me way better driver in the winter. Because if you can drive in the winter in Montreal, an old K car with summer tires, you could drive in any winter in Canada. Like, it, what? it's no comparison. Very well said. My wife's from South Shore Greenfield Park, and she's always said, if you can drive in Montreal, you can drive anywhere. She's right. No, Andrew. Like, And, and, and people told me that until I moved there. And the first week or so, it was normal winter. Like, everyone's talking about Montreal winters. It's not so bad. And then I had met a friend of mine from high school who happened to be in town. And we went to, there was like a, a jazz rib place in Montreal. So we were having dinner. And I kept looking outside. I'm like, oh, it seems to be snowing. I got outside. I'm like, oh, my God. It took me like two hours to do like a 15-minute drive home. And then the next day, the snow was above the roof line of the car and everyone all they did was shovel just a little path to get your car out but montreal has the best snow removal system i think in the world so then but two days later there was no snow on our road because we all had road parking and nothing on the sidewalk gone like gone like they plowed it put it in these dump trucks dump it in the st lawrence river or the lachine canal and it was gone it was unbelievable well, the best advice I was always given for driving in Montreal or Boston was don't signal, you'll give away your strategy. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that, okay, real quick, fast forward. I So I guess in February, March of 95, I get hired to work at the fan and I'm driving one day and I like, I'm five, 10 centimeters off the buffer of a guy because that's how you drove in Montreal. And I realized, Wait a sec! I'm not in control anymore. I had to change my ways because I think people were looking like, "Who's this maniac?" Now, in your Montreal days, you also had the amazing experience of covering that incredible Montreal Canadiens run to winning the Stanley Cup in 1993 as the Habs, backstopped by Patrick Waugh, set a playoff record by winning 10 overtime games, tying a playoff record by winning 11 games in a row. This, of course, was the same playoffs where we came one unnoticed Wayne Gretzky high stick on Dougie Gilmore away from a Habs versus Leafs Stanley Cup final. But I digress. Jim, to date, this was still your only Stanley Cup parade enjoyed live right in front of you. Yeah, it was, Andrew, I still think about that. So there was a bit of a mini riot outside of the forum when they won. So they used to do the parade on St. Catherine. So they decided to do it on Sherbrooke because they had more crowd control. And... Um, there was a sort of a, a sales office that, that did corporate sales for corporate clients in Montreal. It was on the third floor overlooking Sherbrooke Avenue. And they invited us and they basically opened up the window so we could stand there. And then we sat in chairs and watched the floats go by. And until you see the Stanley Cup on a float and there's Serge Savard and there's Kirk Muller and Patrick Waugh and all the players waving, you don't understand what it means to see a Stanley Cup parade. And then it hits you like, Wow. And that like that's the one and only Stanley Cup parade I've been to. And it was to be there in Montreal in 93. And at the time, never in my wildest dreams ever would I think that's the last Canadian team to have won a cup in the NHL and have a Stanley Cup parade. And so I feel blessed that I was able to watch it. 
And it was a fantastic scene. Like, I mean, I, you know, people joke, you know, I'm a Leafs fan by nature, but there is something special about seeing the Montreal Canadiens in Montreal, the passion they have for the team, uh, that arena, the noise they make, the passion for the fans, and to see the Stanley Cup on that parade was, that was unbelievable. Well, I am jealous, and everyone knows what I'm going to say next. 56 years and counting, not in my lifetime. So one day, we'll hopefully be able to enjoy it. I'm with you, Andrew. (laughs) Jim, am I correct that your television on-camera start came at Sportsnet as a vacation time fill-in? Almost. Okay, so what happened was, um, I was the sports director at Talk 640. Uh, Marshall Liedemann was doing the afternoon Tom Rivers was doing the mornings. Evelyn Mako was there. Larry Silver. That was like Evelyn Mako. I probably learned as much from her as anyone in my career. Like she is a goddess to me when it comes as, as a broadcaster. So a friend of mine, well, Mike Hogan had done some stuff for CHTV and doing some uh, OUA sports, football mainly, and some hockey. And they said they needed some people to do some games because he had some obligations doing other things. So I did I did a, about six or seven uh, football games for CHTV and a couple hockey games. And then we they had launched a thing called Sportsnet Radio in 2001. And so it was, we were feeding sports updates to about eight chorus radio stations for a couple of years in different markets, uh, Toronto, London, Hamilton, uh, I think Kingston as well. But what happened was they used to do the morning show live. Now, the TV morning show live is you have to be there at 4 a.m. and they go live at 6 a.m. And they had um, Damien Goddard was doing the morning show and was going to go on a, like a three-week vacation. Um, like as he had been married and this wife and him, they were going to go to Europe. She had family in Europe and they were going to take a long vacation. And the talent who did the night show said, we're not doing that. They would fill in and their bodies were so accustomed to showing up at seven o'clock on the air to two state. Like they, they physically said, I can't do it. So they gave me a screen test. They knew I'd done some stuff for CH. And so that is what happened. So I ended up being the backfill for Damien Goddard. And then when Hazel May got hired, I would backfill for her when she had other obligations or she was off. And you love being on TV. It did. You know, I did. It, it, It was really cool. It was very different than radio. You know, for radio, for the most part, you can do it with one or two people, just a handful of people, uh, your equipment, your microphone. It was it was eye-opening, Andrew, because you realize for TV, for every person on the air, there's at least a dozen behind the scenes. Like it takes a, a small crew, like a small little army of people between uh, the producers and editors and the technicians. Like it, there's so much involved in it. And that was uh, that was a great experience, experiencing that, understanding that, and learning about that, um, doing those shows. Another show you did back to your radio days was two and a half years as the morning show co-host on Sportsnet Radio, The Fan, 590, alongside Greg Brady. How'd you enjoy that experience? It was a, That was a really interesting and good experience. Um, you know, it was funny because there was so much happening in sports at the time, and while we were doing the morning show, and the U.S. Navy SEALs had got Bin Laden. And so and so that next day, we basically did people talking about, I mean, 9-11 changed all of us, especially of our vintage. And we were all touched by it some way. And, uh, you know, we had a reporter, I can't remember who the name was, forgive me, but 
he was in the University of Michigan campus, and basically the like, University of Michigan is a huge, you know, education uh, institution in Ann Arbor. And basically, all the students and professors know it was that class. They were at this rally outside because of what it meant to have had them to had got Bin Laden. So it was that was very interesting. And we weren't, hey, if something big happened that wasn't sports, they were like, you guys talk about that. We'll cover sports in the updates. And I and I did appreciate that. It was. And we met a lot of cool people and interviewed a lot of neat people, and uh, it was it was very interesting. I really liked it. You got to spread your wings. Yeah, well, you know, and my big thing, Andrew, is um, you talked about it earlier. I'm always a believer, as you can always learn to do other things. You can't, especially in Canadian media in 2023, to just do one job and keep it is very difficult. You have to train yourself to do other things, to maybe do some TV or camera stuff, maybe do some writing, maybe do. Uh, so if you can do different things for the same money that you're being paid, you're more employable because unfortunately there's a finite amount of money in Canadian media and the days where they would pay, you know, six figures for that person just to do that. And, you know, that kind of thing, those are over. And they're like, hey, we'll pay you this, but we need you to do this, this, and this. And that's just the way it is. You got to have all the tools in your toolbox these days. Jim, you then went over to the region, 105.9, your current role. Now, as noted, you were the very first voice to be heard when the station started December 2013. What do you remember about that inaugural broadcast? Oh, gosh. I mean, it felt like I was back to my, my roots as a broadcaster, Andrew, the week before all the equipment hadn't arrived yet because some of the stuff had to be ordered. Uh, John Stubbs, the late great John Stubbs, who was our technical manager, who sadly passed away after a long battle with cancer uh, earlier in the year, a uh, wonderful man, he um, he was able to basically MacGyver everything together and get the equipment, and we had to be on the air that day, and he basically said, yeah, we can do it. And because, with you know, he... Think about that. John Stubbs, he did the audio, radio audio for the 76 Montreal Olympics. You know, and like the, that's the kind of stuff he did. He did, he would handle the radio audio for the visiting radio broadcasters for the Montreal Expos and Canadians for years. So he, I mean, he, it's one of those things. This is where experience comes in. This is where you can't teach what he knows. Like he, only time can teach that. And because he'd been doing it for four decades and basically had been there, done that and seen everything, he knew exactly what to do. And we got on the air and been on the air ever since. Well, on that note, time sure flies because you and the station are now approaching your 10th anniversary. So congratulations. Do you want to give a shout out to the other well-known personalities at the Region 105.9? Sure. I mean, well, Ann Romer, who does the Weekend Show, The Feed. Sunil Joshi, people might remember from CFTO, CFTO doing morning news. We have a lot of them, but I, 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 you know, we also have some really young, talented people who have come a long way. Shaliza Bacchus, who's doing our afternoons right now, our music director, Christina, our young engineer, Phil. And it's a nice balance, Andrew, between, you know, old goats like me and young up and comers who are really eager to learn. And uh, it's so, it, it's really, really nice that way. Uh, Rob Pagetto, Rob on the Road, used to work at YTV, and he was actually the first in-arena host for the Raptors for the first couple seasons. And he does some, um, he does like live events, and he's doing also some weekend shows as well. So, yeah, it's a nice mix. It's really cool. 
If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Jim Lang, please check out the more than 160 additional episodes available anytime. We got Scott Morrison, Steve Simmons, Michael Landsberg, Ken Reed, Brian Wood, and Kenny Albert. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. I do want to ask you about some of your interesting media experiences. In 2002, you served as the radio voice of the Toronto Argonauts on Mojo Radio AM640. Who were your broadcasting partners? And do you remember who the significant Argo players of that time were? I sure do. My broadcast partners were Brian Warren, who was a big part of the Argos 91 team, and Rick Lowen, who was also called Ripken, and was a show host on Mojo Radio. The Argos that year were a very interesting team. So they had a coaching change. Gary Etcheverry was let go, and Pinball Clemens took over for about the last eight games of the season. At the time, they were out of the playoffs. And Pinball, to his credit, he, he got them playing, got them winning. Mike O'Shea was on the defense, and Reggie Slack had been given the, the reins as the quarterback, and they ended up, they won the last game of the regular season to qualify for the playoffs. They beat they beat, they beat Calgary that night. They beat Saskatchewan the next night in a crossover playoff game, and next thing you know, we were going to Montreal for the Eastern Final. And if it wasn't for Reggie Slack getting hurt, like early in the third quarter, they may have got to the great cup, but yeah, that was a great experience. Also, Andrew, you have to understand, you know, in, in Toronto and Southern Ontario, it's such a different universe than cities and other parts of Canada, especially Western Canada. In Western Canada, those cities, the CFL, hockey, junior hockey, hurling, those sports are hugely popular out there. Big money, big ratings, big revenue. And, you know, people want to slag the CFL all they want, but, you know, ratings and money are king. And if you look consistently... They draw big numbers, and TSN makes good revenue from the product because the, the advertisers know every time there's a game Friday night, they're going to get five, six hundred thousand people across Canada. And for an advertiser, that's how do you beat that? I think it's a great point. I think you really learned from that experience that what the CFL and some other sports leagues mean within the snobby center of the universe is very different from the rest of Canada. It, it is. I, I was just recently in Nova Scotia. And um, for some family matters and, you know, it's it's Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and the Maritimes. Yes, they watch Toronto sports, but they watch a lot of sports from New England and Boston, you know, and Montreal is, you know, they're very, very loyal to their Montreal teams. And, you know, you depending where you are, even in Ontario, there are people in London who are half Red Wings diehards, half Leaf fans. So it's it's quite interesting. And, you know, Vancouver, that sports market, is vastly different than Toronto. And so sometimes I think, uh, you know, Toronto sportscasters, Toronto sports executives and producers, you can kind of get that center of the universe blinders on. But I, I think it's important for anyone who's doing, I think, any news, entertainment, sports, whatever your field of a broadcaster, to get out other parts of Canada and understand how they live, how they act, what's important to them, how they consume their news and what they follow. Cause it, it it's, you realize it's different, but also helps you do your job. Well, there's nothing bigger in your job than covering Super Bowls, which you have done. Super Bowl 42 was between the NFC champion and huge underdogs, the New York Giants, and the, to that point, undefeated <laughs> AFC champions, the New England Patriots, to decide the 2007 championship from State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. 
Jim, what are your recollections of covering Super Bowl 42? Beautiful, beautiful stadium. You know, people realize this is the future. Their field, it's grass field and it slides out underneath the stands. So it's watered, it's in the sun, recycled water, and then only on game day does it roll into the stadium. So what happened is I was in New England covering the Patriots for the championship game. They beat the Chargers. They're undefeated. Everyone's like, there was only a handful of people in the world and they were within the Giants locker room that thought the Giants had a chance. Because the Patriots, especially towards the end of the season of the playoffs, they were just so good. And everyone thought they were going to run the table. And the media day that week was absolute bonkers. So what happens is you get an hour with one team. There's an hour break. They give you like like a bit of food. And then they bring the other team. And then there's an hour. Well, when the Patriots and Tom Brady were doing it, there were way more reporters than the Giants. There were actually less reporters when the Giants had their hour. And somewhere along that week, whether it was Michael Strahan or Eli Manning or Tom Coughlin, they they started to believe and they could do it. And just before the David Tyree catch off the helmet, all the reporters were ushered just before the field. So if you can imagine, we're in the concrete corridor just before you go onto the field because at the end of the game, everyone runs on the field. So they have TVs up there so the reporters can see what's going on the last few minutes of the game. So on one side of the hallway, it's all New York reporters. and the other side, it's all Boston, New England reporters. And I'm with the Canadian slash international contingent. And we're kind of, it's actually fascinating to watch. So when the Patriots would do something, the Boston reporters would be, oh. the New York reporters, when the Giants did something, they would cheer as well, even though technically you're not supposed to cheer. And so Tyree makes the catch. And then Plaxico Burris catches the touchdown and the Giants pull off the upset. And the scene on the field afterwards with all the New York reporters, well, I there was no way I was going to get near Mike or Strahan because it was every New York reporter within the tri-state area was around it. But it was a fabulous scene, a, a great night. And it, it shows you that sports is the ultimate reality show because anything can happen. Like in my lifetime, the miracle on ice and all these different upsets, you just don't know. And that, that was a big part of it. I'm going to put you on the spot. Who played the halftime show? Tom Petty. Oh, my God. I'm I'm not messing with a rookie year. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Super Bowl 43 the next year, which was yeah. between the AFC champion Pittsburgh Steelers and the NFC champion Arizona Cardinals. This was to decide the 2008 championship from Raymond James Stadium in Tampa Bay, Florida. Jim, what are your recollections of Super Bowl 43? That's my favorite Super Bowl I've ever covered. Best week, we had a reporting and stories. We were able to interview... Uh, Rod Woodson, just after he got inducted to the Hall of Fame, and he was so humble and gracious about it. At the day of the game, it, it could not be more perfect. Uh, Sully Sullenberger had just landed the Airbus in the East River. They they honored him just before the you know the coin toss and all that. Jennifer Hudson sings the anthem, and in a stadium like that, you can't appreciate what kind of voice she has. It's uh, it gave you chills, and as she said. The land of the free and home of the brave, the stadium is shaking from the speakers. The Blue Angels come over. And I'm about a few feet away from Mike Tirico and some other reporters. That, and we're like, we all look at each other. Well, what just happened? The game was unbelievable. It had some of the biggest, wildest plays I've ever seen with James Harrison inter- interception. I thought Larry Fitzgerald was going to win the game all on himself. Santonio Holmes, they had Bruce Springsteen do a fabulous halftime show. 
Um, the way it ended, Barack Obama had just been elected. He calls Mike Tomlin. So here's an African-American president calling an African-American head coach who just won the Super Bowl. I mean, it was, I mean, it was about the most perfect week of reporting and stories. And then the game and the game night itself experience was, was five out of five, Andrew. Well, you can't get bigger than that. But for a kid like me growing up in Toronto, my dream job would be the traveling beat reporter for our beloved Maple Leafs. You did this job, Jim, covering the Leafs day to day. Is that actually the dream job or in reality, how does that job work? I really enjoyed it. It was very educational. So when you're a traveling beat reporter, you see and experience a lot of stuff that other reporters wouldn't do because you're with the team on and off the road, in hotels, traveling. Uh, Now, you don't travel on the team charter, but you're in their hotels and all that and in the arenas. And so you know what to report, what not to report. You have to have discretion, be respectful to them, because when they're away from the rank and they're with the guys, they're just them. That's their time. That's not something you report on. That's not my business. You know what I mean, Andrew? That's that's for them. to. They're going to go have dinner, do their thing. Often, sometimes, they would ask us the next day at the game day skate, like, where'd you guys eat? Well, we're reporters on per diem. So we'd say, well, we ate at, you know, Apple Bomb Steakhouse. And they're like, Apple Bomb? They'd be making fun of us. Oh, that's... And like, because they would be at the Ritz because they're on, you know, a different pay grade and they'd be in a different restaurant. So they would like, they would tease us that way. And I have a great memory. So, you know, Howard Berger, you know, a legendary reporter, we were covering the trade deadline. So this would have been March of 2006. And we had a whole group of reporters and we had flown early to Long Island to get ready for a Lease Islanders game because it was the day of the deadline. And we were basically in the entrance. There's a side entrance where the bus drops off the players from the airport. They come in the side entrance. There's a table and it has their room card and their per diem in an envelope because it's written in the CBA that they get X amount of dollars a day, U.S. money, and they get the room card. And it's it's the trade deadline day. So you know all the players are in a bad mood because they don't know if they're being traded or not. So we made a bet who would be the first player to swear at us when they walk in. Howard Berger won, and we started peeling off dollar bills and slapping it in his hand. And the players are like, what are you doing? He goes, oh, we made a bet that so-and-so would be the first guy to swear at us. And they were like, you guys. And so, you know, there there is that bit of um, back and forth with the players and reporters, you know, because you're in their face every day. Andrew, it's human nature. Some days, like, the nicest person in the world, like, I'm just not in the mood to talk. And I was always like, that's fine. There's 20 other guys. There's coaches. I'll talk to someone else. It's okay. Because I always felt my job as a reporter is if that person won't talk, I'll talk to someone else. You know, because the two days from now they'll talk to me. Like, so that's that's part of your job is to be you have to be flexible that way. That if you know player A is not talking, let's talk to the other person. They're they're interesting. They've got a story. Tell their story. Life is all about relationships. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, and it, a lot of the relationships I made during my time. And so uh, those relationships I made with players and coaches and team personnel, both with the Leafs and around the league, I I still have some of those relationships to this day. And sometimes if I'm writing hockey books, I'll reach out to people and we've, you know, I, I tried my best Andrew to be respectful to them and respect them. And I think they appreciated that. Well, it sounds like they absolutely did because we are going to talk about your 
career as a noted author specializing in bringing notable hockey players' memoirs to life, there is a relatively small pool of authors that noted literary agent Brian Wood sends the bat signal up for when a hockey player wants to write his memoir. There's Ken Reed, Scott Morrison, Greg Oliver, Kevin Shea, Garrett Joyce, and of course, Jim Lay. How'd you get into the book writing game? What happened was in 2003 at Sportsnet, the, the second year I did the Argos, the ownership had some money and they were not going to do the radio broadcast for the Argos. Now, they were just starting Sportsnet.ca and they needed content. And they said, Jim, we have no one to write about the CFL. Could you write a weekly power rankings? I'm like, I think so. And they said, we just need like a paragraph for each team. Why why the Argos are three, why the Blue Bombers are one and go through. And then, you know, we'll help you and teach you if you don't know anything. So that's how I started. So I wasn't getting paid extra money, but they needed CFL content. And I, I thought this is, I'd like to learn how to be better at this. And this is good as a, for my broadcasting career. So over time, I started writing more and more and started doing some blogs and some longer pieces. And, you know, it just, I just started to do a lot more of it. And I would, they would tell me stuff. I would ask them questions. We go back and forth. So all of a sudden I was, yeah, as I was on the air, I was also doing almost as much stuff for the website, uh, writing articles and columns for the website. And that lasted probably a good, and then even when I was at the fan, uh, a good 10 years. Well, I think it would be great if you can share some thoughts, not only on the co-writing process, but any interesting learnings from each of your subjects. Let's start with your 2016 book covering beloved former Maple Leaf Ty Domi's 16 seasons in the NHL called Shift Work. Ty was a fascinating guy. Uh, grew up, his parents were uh, European immigrants, uh, grew up hard scrabble, dad worked multiple jobs. He didn't know it at the time, he was undiagnosed di- dyslexia. And in the 70s, they didn't really diagnose kids with that. I don't know if you remember, like a lot of the stuff they talk about kids now, you know, ADHD, dyslexia, and that was not diagnosed in the 1970s in schools in Ontario. And he was a a, a good athlete who became a better athlete through hard work and determination. And he, every step along the way, he would just work harder. Uh, he was physically, like a physically naturally strong person. He wasn't the tallest guy in the world. But like an iron grip with his hand and very strong. And I talked to, writing this book, I talked to one of the uh, athletic therapists and strength coaches with the Leafs and said he he could pick up a 110-pound double with one hand and hoist it over his head. Like like it was nothing. And, and some of his teammates would joke, like if he was playing around in practice, if he got a hold of your sweater, you were done. Like you couldn't get away from him. And, and but the one thing, like his dad passed away of a, heart attack when Ty was a young player, but Ty's father, John, was this really interesting. So when you go to an event and someone gives you your card, give them a call the next day or send them a note saying, thank you, it was nice to meet you. And I think Ty was always smart enough. People don't give him credit enough for this. He knew that what he did in the NHL, there was a shelf life to it. He couldn't do it forever. And so he was always thinking, what am I going to do when I'm done playing? So he was also spending a lot of time, not just talking to other athletes, but people in real estate, business, finance, trying to teach himself all that for his life after hockey. And and so I was able to meet a lot of very interesting people and talk to a lot of very interesting people doing the research for this book. And it was was my, my first book. So 
it was very daunting to say the least. There were many times I'd have my head in my hands and my wife would come by and go, you're right. I goes, I don't know if I could do this. Uh, but, but, you know, I was able to pull it off and we, um, we were fortunate. It was number one for a number of weeks on the Canadian nonfiction list and sold well. And yeah. Well, it must've been good because you obviously got a great referral from Ty to his son, Max. How about your thoughts on your 2020 book with our newest Maple Leaf, Max Domi called No Days Off, My Life with Type 1 Diabetes and Journey to the NHL. Max is such a great kid. Really nice guy. My, my now late father um, had type 2 diabetes. My grandmother had type 2 diabetes. But I didn't know about type 1. And so it was very educational to me how serious it is for juvenile diabetes. He was diagnosed at 12, and a lot of kids are in, when they get juvenile diabetes, the type 1 diabetes, I found Andrew, are in that sort of prepubescent puberty age, and something goes wrong, and all of a sudden they're a type 1 diabetic. And now... If they don't have the right amount of insulin and they're not checking blood sugar all the time, it can have potentially fatal consequences. Because you know, and so one of the things he found out, we he, he told the story. He's playing for the London Knights, and because he was diabetic, the trainers, you know, those little styrofoam takeout containers, they they put a thing called Max, and they put it on a seat, and he had his, I think he was watching. He said he was watching Prison Break on his iPad. You know, because they're doing the bus trip from London to Owen Sound and guys are just kind of doing their thing. And it was his meal. It helps him, you know, keeps his blood sugar stable and all that. Well, he's watching the show. He forgot to eat it. And he was, his eyes were open, but he was blacked out. And his teammates were saying, Max, Max. And then they called him. They had to give him, it's it's an EpiPen for diabetics called Glucagon. And it's an instant rush of sugar. They take him to the hospital. They said, Max, where are you? So I'm in Fort Lauderdale. And they're like, yeah, you're not playing tonight. And that's the danger of type 1 diabetes. And you don't, your blood sugar can crash so low or go so high. So what happens is because of his type 1 diabetes, wherever Max plays, about every second shift, you'll see him take one glove off, stick his hand behind him, and the trainer will check his blood sugar. They check the number and they have little things along the back wall there for him to adjust his blood sugar. And then at after the game, when the plane lands, to say they're on a road trip, they'll make him stay up an hour after they get to the hotel so that in case they get a false reading, because sometimes, you know, the, the adrenaline of the game, so he's they'll force him to wait, say if they get to the hotel at 1 or 1.30, they won't let him go to sleep to at least 2.30, then they check his blood sugar, then they'll say, okay, you can go to bed. And that's the difference with what Max lives with as an athlete with his diabetes, and he's done a lot of good work talking to families, talking to kids about living with type 1 diabetes. And it's important not just for the kids, but for the parents to understand. So uh, that that was really enjoyable working with him. He's overcome so much, and maybe you'll have an opinion, Jim. He is penciled in as a top six forward for our Leafs this year. How is Max going to do? He's got great speed. He, he can finish. He's got some grit to his game. I mean, think about his last name. I think he's going to fit in well with the Leafs. I, I kind of really like what Brad Tree Living has done. I'm a, I, as much as I like Max, I'm a huge fan of Tyler Bertuzzi. So I was thrilled that they got him. And so I'm actually fascinated to see how this team comes together with Sheldon Keefe. And, and what Brad Tree Living's done is he's quietly like, Sheldon Keefe, here's an extension. You're staying for a few years. Here's money for these guys. So I think the players realize that, you know, Tree Living just quietly does his thing. I, you, you almost, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, you don't hear anything about anything he's doing until it's announced. 
there's no, hey, we, there's nothing, Andrew. Like when it happens, it's being announced. Like, oh, our boss just did that. That's cool. And that's what I kind of like that about him. Well, 56 years in running, you're not going to fool me again, Jim, but here I am getting, you got me all excited again. <laughs> Sorry, Hadri. How about process and thoughts from your 2017 book with former Maple Leafs captain Wendell Clark entitled Bleeding Blue, Giving My All for the Game? Oh, it's what a absolute gentleman, an unassuming, egoless man, so humble. And it's kind of a byproduct of where he grew up and, you know, growing up on a, a, a wheat farm that also had cattle in small town Saskatchewan. And, you know, he was born in the late 60s and through the 70s and winter through there there's no time for me, me, me. Like the work's got to be done. And either he was at school or on the farm working because you were expected to chip in and help. And, you know, he's, he's so matter of fact about stuff. And we were doing research for the book and the night before one of the leaf players, there was a deflected puck and he lost some teeth. And he sort of casually mentioned, you know, I've never lost a tooth. I said, well, stop all those games, all those fights, all everything. You never lost a tooth playing hockey, and he kind of shrugged. He goes, "Yeah, oh, well, I'm kind of, you know, they're they're kind of rot now." He was trying to downplay it. And I said, "Wendell," and so I said, "We got to put that in the book." So he goes, "Oh, okay," but you know, like uh, here's the other thing, Wendell. When we edited the book, he never wanted the word "I" in it. He said, "If it's I, you got to take that out," because he, he. So that's I really appreciate that about Wendell. Very nice man, and has time for everybody. I love that. There's no "I" in Wendell. No. No. And Jim, how about your 2019 book with former Maple Leaf Brian Burrard entitled Relentless, My Life in Hockey and the Power of Perseverance? Well, Brian Burrard is, I mean, I absolutely love doing that book with him. Just such a an honest, no-nonsense human being uh, from Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And his accent is very much like a Southie, South Boston. And, you know, before his eye injury, sometimes people may forget, like, and I talked to Paul Maurice about it because he coached him in Detroit in junior. Like what a phenom he was in the OHL and how good he was. I remember when the Leafs traded for him and it, like you had the potential this as he, if he had not hurt his eye, how good he could have been for the Leafs. But I think what amazed so many people around the NHL was the eye injury and then coming back and playing a number of years, basically with one eye. And there's a great story. Jason Strudwick, who works at Edmonton, the former Oiler, did some work in sports radio out there. They were deep partners in Chicago. And Brian Burrard always, no matter what was happening in his life, he always had a sense of humor and put people at ease. So they get scored on. They're back to the bench, and it's quiet. And he looks at Struddy and goes, sorry, Struddy, I didn't see him. Well, the bench starts laughing. The coaches are laughing. So you can't help but not like the guy. He's such a likable human being and everything he's been through. Brian and his family, they forgave Marion Hosa. Marion Hosa was in tears, came to the hospital, and they said, we forgive you. It's hockey. It's not your fault. They are harbor no ill feeling towards him whatsoever. They think the world of Marion Hosa. And I, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't do that, Andrew, but he did. And just, a, I, I just, some, you know, we still sometimes just text each other now and then. Just to say hi, see how you're doing, because I just like the guy. He's just was such a nice guy to work with. Wow, that's great to hear. Jim, you've also written Everyday Hockey Heroes, Volumes 1 and 2, with Bobby Margarita, a.k.a. Bob <laughs> McKenzie, with a third volume scheduled to come out next fall. 
what is Everyday Hockey Heroes and when would you start working on next year's volume three? Next year's volume three, we're already working on it. So that's already being worked on. They they wanted to highlight different people in hockey, people you may not know about, people who are overcoming things, whether it's their sexuality, their gender, their race, their income level, whatever it is to be part of this sport. And we think of it as our game and it's welcome to everyone. Well, it's not always welcome to everyone. And sometimes people have to overcome stuff to be part of hockey. So we wanted to tell stories about different people in the game and what they've had to go through to be part of the game. And I thought it's been very educational for me and eye-opening and I've learned a lot. And working with Bob is a gift. I mean, he's the Bob father, right? I mean, to be able to work with him is one of the great achievements in my life and career. But uh, getting to talk to the different people and interview them and help tell their stories, I I'd, I'd absolutely loved it. And some of them were uh, people you may know about, but some of them are people you never heard of. And it's it's it, it all felt the same. I got the same enjoyment out of it. That's great. Well, Jim, you got so much going on. Where can we best follow you? Are you uh, on social media? And uh, direct us to where we get more information about you and what you're up to. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Langer's World, L-A-N-G-E-R-S, because a lot of people call me Langer. So Langer's World on um, Instagram. And then on Twitter, I'm at Jim Lang Sports. And you can hear me weekdays at 105.9 The Region from 5 to 10, or you can listen online at 105.9theregion.com. And um, I have another book coming out in April of next year. I can't talk about it yet until the publishers allow me, but it's it's going to be pretty special. And I think you're going to really, you would really enjoy it, Andrew. But I, I, I really want to thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed this. And I have to say, I don't know, you, you really did your homework. Where did you get some of these questions? I, I was sitting there like, all that. Well, I appreciate that. I always, uh, research is always important in preparation. So I appreciate your kind words and Thank you for that tease. You left me wondering now, but I'm absolutely going to reconnect with you when you do have permission to talk about the new book because you, you got me sold already, Jim. Okay. I, I, I will def, I'll definitely text you because uh, we're, we're text buddies now. So I'll text you when I know I'm allowed to say something, Andrew. I can't wait. So I want to thank you for your time today and of course, wish you continued success. And I look forward to that text. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Jim Lang, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. 
4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.